You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So I want to invite you now as one of the things that we do because of who we are in Christ. We, we open the Bible together, and I want to invite you into Ezra, an Old Testament book in the third chapter. We'll be picking up in the latter half of that chapter where we left off a couple of weeks ago. So don't be afraid of the table of contents in the Bible maybe you have access to on a device or or something like that. But if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to hold one, then you'll see on, in, a, in a tray in the chair in front of you or behind you, or no, that'll be beneath you or in front of you, um, there's a, a paperback Bible. And I encourage you, you'll, you'll be in kind of the first half of the book, thumb through, until you find Ezra. This is an Old Testament writing about what we've described up to this point as a second exodus. So let me kind of catch you up on where we are and why we would even open this this history of God's people being brought back from exile to Jerusalem. So the the beginning of the Bible starts with this picture of a perfect God creating out of the overflow of his perfection. He didn't need to create. He didn't need to make you or me. And yet he did, did so out of joy and because it was good to do so. And so these people, given a perfect opportunity to live in communion and presence with God, kind of had one job, right? One job, and they couldn't keep it. And they rebelled against God, and they wanted their own way. They wanted to be God rather than to live in communion with God, depending upon him. And instead of the story ending right there, which it certainly would have done had I been writing it, the story goes on, and God gives them mercy and grace. He gives them another chance and gives them another opportunity, so much so that he delivers them from bondage and grants them a place to, to in that sense, experience his presence, a promised land, and be a people set apart distinct for his glory. That was their one job, right? Just just live here, be distinct, and glorify me in the way that you live in light of my character. Couldn't do it. And so again, they're they're punished, they're disciplined, they're they're banished in that sense. As we saw last year as we were walking through the book of Lamentation, they were exiled by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians scattered them, plundered them, destroyed everything. And yet that wasn't the end of the story. Again, God was pleased to bring a faithful remnant and work the circumstances so that these people who had been exiled, homeless, were brought back home. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is the story of this people getting a second exodus, a second deliverance back to the promised land to live in this place and worship him. In chapter 1, we saw that this new exodus is, is in this sense, followed by the numbering of the people. We saw in chapter 2. And then the altar is rebuilt, and they celebrate the beginning of chapter 3. And so we'll pick up at the end of chapter 3, and we're going to skim all the way through chapter 6. Now, we did this in in the book of Hosea. Um, I'm going to skip around and through because there's some repetitive lists, but I'll give you an outline of where we're going. So we read the first half of chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago in which the people of God were called to do the first and most important thing, and that was build an altar. Because after all, if you're going to be a people distinct, set aside for God's purpose, and represent God's perfection and holiness, the first thing you have to deal with is sin. You have to address the fact that you don't look like God. Your sin costs, and yet, in sacrifice, at the altar, we don't pay for our sin. And so, the first thing they were called to do, to be a distinct people in a second exodus, was to sacrifice, to worship, to give. They gave offerings on and on and on. 
And then in the second half of chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, is what we'll read. After they built the altar, they began to build the temple. The catch is, it takes all the way to chapter 6, as we're going to cover, to complete the temple. A series of events takes place. And what I would contend, uh, even for you here, is like uh, there's, there's a powerful lesson, I believe, when we, when we think about how Ezra and being called back to experience renewal has for us. So the question I began our time with, and this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, a remnant that experiences renewal, is this. I want you to answer this as personally as possible. Where do you want or need to experience renewal? Where do you want or where do you need to experience renewal? Think of it this way. Where do you currently lack enthusiasm, energy, joy, hope? Where in your life are you the most heartless and hardened? Where in your life do you lack compassion and mercy and care and patience? Where in your life do you find it the hardest to forgive? Where in in your life would you say you experience the least amount of God's presence? I want you to ask those questions. I want you to write down the answer. And I want them to be the topic of prayer. If you're really brave, you can share the answer with someone else and they'll pray for you as well. If you're super brave, in a a grace-filled community, you can ask someone else that. Hey, where do I tend to be the most merciless? Hey, where do I tend to be the coldest? And you can ask those questions. You can ask those questions like a child can come to a father and ask for anything they want, knowing that whatever your answer is to this question, I promise you, it is the Lord's delight to grant you. There's no shame in that. Like, right, you, you might, in, in the world sense, you might answer that question like, well, I'm the most unforgiving over here, and, and immediately kind of feel shame and condemnation, when in fact it's the work of the Holy Spirit to bring that thing to the surface because the Lord delights to give you healing. The Lord delights to shed his mercy onto you to pass on to others. So where do you want or need to experience the most renewal? As we see the story here, I just realized the slide is not going to be helpful. In a slide that's meant to like be, give clarity, I'm going to warn you, this slide does not, okay? It looks like the first and second slide. Uh, golly, man. All right. The first, uh, one of those slides is, is kind of a thesis statement. The sorrows and joys of this life are mixed. You'll see that in the text. Um, and yet God will renew and grant endurance to the faithful remnant by being with them. And then there was going to be a separate slide of a timeline that would help make more sense of the text we're about to read. Unfortunately, oops. So let's pay attention to the numbers just briefly. <laughs> Forgive what will be many flaws that you'll see over the course of the next 45 minutes. But I want you to see the timeline that we're reading through. The, the way that the Bible tells the story is, in that sense, not how we tell the story of time. We, we reinterpret time and, and add years to them. But in this sense, you'll hear the timeline is, as in Ezra 1, 1, in the, in the first year of Cyrus. So the way that it would tell time is, in that sense, what was the most important thing happening, and that was the change of kings. So you'll see, in 539, Babylon falls to Cyrus. So in that first year, five roughly when they take over, that, Cyrus, that decree from Cyrus in Ezra chapter 1-1 takes place. But then, 
over a period of time later, now you'll see over, over the course of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have roughly 100 plus years. Do you see that? From about 539, now it's BC or BCE in that sense, so it counts backward, right? As the, as the time progresses, it gets closer to a common era, common era that is wink, wink, Jesus, right? So from 539 to 424, roughly, is about the timeline that we would understand the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Esther happens right in the middle of this as well. And so what makes this often confusing, and at least you'll see it happens in chapter 4, is that the way the Bible often tells stories is not chronologically, but theologically, thematically. And they're willing to tell things out of order to prove a point. Now, for those of you in the room that maybe you're James Joyce fans, uh, or maybe more modern, maybe you're like Quentin Tarantino fans, right? Telling the story backwards kinds of po- kind of points to something, right? It, it points to uh, like a, a moment of emphasis. And, and the Bible does the exact same thing. And you'll see Ezra, as he, as he kind of retells this story, does this. So, so what we know is Cambyses, now you'll hear him mentioned here, kind of a generic name, as Ahasuerus takes over. And then... About, five, about 520 B.C., Darius takes the throne. Now, you'll see in the course of time here, the beginning of the story takes place, starts in Cyrus, right? And then the end of the temple completion takes place in Darius. But in chapter 4, to prove a point, Ezra is going to interject a story from Artaxerxes, which takes place not, not just the next, uh, as the building is resumed in 520, we'll see that, Xerxes takes over in 485, and Artaxerxes takes over in 465. And some maybe 40 years later, he's on the throne that you'll see the end of Nehemiah. So this is kind of the timeline of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now I say that because in the middle of chapter 4, you're going to see a piece of Artaxerxes interjected to, to point to something, to prove a point, an illustration about history that takes place from Cyrus to Darius. Are you, are, you, are you with me? Just Yeah, totally. You're with me. So it may make sense more. It may not. Not to mention the fact that simultaneously you'll see mentioned Haggai and Zechariah, other New Testament prophets who are speaking about this exact moment. And we'll, we'll go there. So beginning in verse 8 of chapter 3, we're going to skim through. I'll, I'll just follow along. I'll tell you what verses we're going to kind of jump through so you'll get the idea of what's taking place. And then in the middle of chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, you'll hear Ezra go like, speak to his modern audience to prove a point as he's telling the story of, of the history of God's people being brought back in a second exodus to Jerusalem. So beginning in verse 8. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, And Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. The people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithradath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as, follow, as follows. Now skip along and hear what this letter is, beginning in verse 11. This copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, beyond the Jordan, that's how they would have thought of it, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city, here it is again, is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from old. That was why this city was laid to waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So the king answers. And so for the next few verses, the king says, you're right. Verse 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. See what he did there? 
chapter 5, verse 1. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the king of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the prince beyond the river, and Shethor Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure. And they also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then be answered by returning a letter concerning it. Now here, almost identical to what Ezra says happened with Artaxerxes, happens under Darius. This is a copy of the letter that Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, beyond the Jordan, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius, to Darius, right? And what you have here is almost identical, a story written by people who wanted to stop the rebuilding. Look at verse 12. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon. These Cyrus, the king, took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Shesbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to them, take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that it's in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on this side, on this site. So verse 6, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found of which it is written, a record. This will sound exactly like Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered and let its foundation be retained. Its height shall be, and then he lays out exactly what it will be, and it will be paid by the king. So in verse 13 of chapter 6. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, you guys should have to say that like four times in front of a crowd, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar and the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. They offered this dedication. It gives a list of what they did. So in verse 19 of chapter 6, on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. You hear the language of a second exodus. 
For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all their returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with, the, with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is God's word and I pray that it becomes encouragement to us as he speaks to us through it. From chapter 3 to chapter 6, we have an account, a long account, a series of many, many years of God bringing his people back, them building an altar, and then over the course of time through much adversity, laying the foundation of the temple and then building and completing the temple. In chapter 3, you saw that they were commemorating that they'd been preserved by sacrificing at an altar. And chapter 4, what we see is the beginning of, even what it seemed to be encouraging, the beginning of real and effective opposition. The word there literally is adversity. Did you see that? That there were in verse 1 of chapter 4, adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, the people who inhabited Jerusalem and that area. And then, Ezra kind of brackets the opposition that he faces and Nehemiah faces in his own day. Remember, if you, if you split Ezra and Nehemiah into three parts, it really should be Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Chapters 1 through 6 are Zerubbabel. He's the first leader. And then from 7 to 10 in Ezra, we, we get introduced to Ezra, what he gets to lead the people to do. And then Nehemiah, of course, is about Nehemiah. And in these kind of three chapters, you see the rebuilding of the altar, the temple, and then the walls and city. Now, Nehemiah has most to do with the, the walls in the city, but we find here that like Ezra interjects in chapter 4 what, what must have been happening in his day, that like there was adversity. Did you hear it? Uh, someone wrote and, and wrote to the king and said, hey, stop these people from rebuilding. And yet, they referenced back to God's word to his people through the prophets, through, we see here, it was like, the prophets, and through even God changing the heart of Cyrus, and so the rebuilding resumed under Artaxerxes. And then it jumped back into the, the story, did you hear it? Where people were doing the same thing in the time of Darius. They were accusing the people, saying, look, Darius, if you let these people build, they're not going to pay taxes, they're, they're, like it's going to be a mess. They have a history of rebellion. And the same thing happens. They, they, they go back and, and find out, no, this is actually a decree that was made under Cyrus. It was God's word to his people. And through adversity, much adversity, adversity that was effective, that actually stopped. It seemed to have paused or ended the progress they had made. By chapter 6, as the building resumes, they finish the temple. And they get to celebrate, did you hear that, with joy the sacrifice of Passover, the sacrifice of the unleavened bread, feasts that they would celebrate because God had delivered them from the wilderness, from slavery, back to receive his promise. So there's two things that I think take place here that are, are worth our time and attention. The first happens exclusively in those last verses from verse 8 to verse 13 of chapter 3. 
the beginning and the laying of the foundation of the temple. And then from chapter 4, 5, and 6, you see adversity that comes in waves under Artaxerxes even, but under, during the time of Darius until they finally complete it. Waves of adversity that stopped the work and lasted for decades. So the first thing I want you to see here in, in chapter 3, and I want to contend for you this morning that this might be one of the most profound and helpful words for you and I here today. First, the mixed emotions that happen when God grows and renews a people. And then from four to six, the adversity that we face in a broken world to renewal. So remember that question I asked, where do you want to experience renewal? Will Ezra and Nehemiah give us a picture of how we do that? in the midst of difficult times, and, and he says in, in explicit ways the things that will keep us from being a part of God's renewing presence. And the first one you see here is at the end of chapter 3, verse 8. They, in the second year, they're coming and they're going to rebuild, right? Did you hear Zerubbabel again? We're, like, we're still, in a sense, Ezra's not in, the, in Jerusalem yet. Zerubbabel is the one that is leading the charge, and they start working. And what I want you to see also is it's believed mostly the second temple Judaism, the second temple worship, which is in many ways what we understand, even when we gather, is directly informed by what we see in Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. Now, we'll see this more in Ezra and Nehemiah, but like most of what we do, even on a Sunday, can be traced back to this. Did you hear it? They got together. They sang responsively, right? Someone opened God's word, and then and in verse 10, they they heeded the, the directions of David, the king of Israel, right? I don't know if you know, he, he, he's written a lot of stuff, most of them psalms. And so most of the time, someone in the morning will stand up here and read from, in that sense, directions from David, the king of Israel. And then what will happen? And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, right? So just, I say that for just a moment. We can become so narcissistic that we think like, We've got things figured out right here and now. I want you to know that to be a Christian and to be a member of our church is not to do something that's like new and hip or relevant. It's to jump into something that's timeless, that's eternal. Now, of course, we, you want to translate that in a language that can be heard by modern ears. But just notice some of the forms here that we experience even now can be traced back to, can be traced back to Ezra's leadership, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah's leadership. So they're singing and worshiping, and then they lay the foundation of the temple, right? Think of like they lay it, and you begin to see how big the temple is going to be. And did you hear what happened? The last verse, uh, verse 13, says that there was such a loud sound that you couldn't even distinguish the sound of joyful shout from weeping. Did you hear that? There were people who had who had, who had fathers, or they, they themselves were old enough that a few decades before, they remember in 587 B.C. when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. They remembered what Solomon's temple looked like. They remembered its size. They remembered even having the Ark of the Covenant there. And when they see the foundation laid, the first thing they realize is this is not like the old temple. This is not like the good old days. And simultaneously, people celebrated and got excited. The, the temple foundation had been laid. 
But in some sense, they had no idea what they were doing because for the next three chapters and decades, I mean, they got excited when the temple foundation was laid, but it isn't finished until decades later. And notice, God is working renewal, and the two natural responses from the people is to wish they could go back in time or to wish they could go into the future. And I would contend for you, miss entirely the presence and grace of God that they can experience right in the moment. Let me stop for a minute before I kind of like, I think, expound upon this, this what we see in these, these four chapters. I want you to meet the grace of God and experience his presence right now through Jesus Christ. Right now. Right now. And what Ezra tells us is that one of the greatest hindrances to renewal is to ignore God's presence in the now and to wish you could have something in the past or wish you could have something in the future. And fundamentally saying, God, you're not enough right now. I don't really want you. I want that. I want back in the past or in the future. They sang, he's good, his steadfast love endures forever. And so they saw a sense in which God was working. But then it says, all the people shouted with a great shout of joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord has been laid. It hadn't even been finished. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish this sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. Stop for a minute. There was such a loud noise and such an overwhelming amount of sorrow over the past and optimism for the future that people couldn't, they could hear, they heard it from a distance, but they couldn't tell which it was. All they knew, it was just some sort of a loudness. And it was a mix between those who wished they could go back to the good old days and those who wished they could get to the end of the completion of the temple. And what I want to contend this morning is that is that is the mixed emotions of experiencing God's presence. In many ways, that's how you know when God's working. We feel conflicted. Why are they weeping? They should be excited. Well, they remembered in their mind what, what it used to be like when there's 600,000 people who came out of out of Egypt to the promised land. And here's the thing, they're probably weeping because the, we don't hear a mention of the Ark of the Covenant. It's likely been destroyed and lost. And so they're like, well, we're going to worship, we're going to sacrifice, but this is not going to be like it once was. And in that sense, it became very clear that what they had been promised, new life, sin had destroyed They'd been restored to the land, but they could tell that that, that glorious end-time promise that all things are going to be made new wasn't coming just yet. The desert wasn't blooming like the prophets had said. The Messiah it wasn't reigning over Jerusalem. Instead, they had a governor kind of appointed underneath Cyrus and Darius. Jerusalem wasn't exalted. They had seen some of these prophecies fulfilled, and yet they still had not realized all of them. Now, for us, this is an invitation that Ezra says, 
we're to have of, of considering what it is that God's actually doing and what this points to for the rest of the Bible. But here's what I think the weeping teaches us, and then we'll talk about what the celebration teaches us. We tend to look back or forward for the good life. Whatever reason, sin causes us, and sin right now, the the sin you've experienced against you, the sin you've committed, is probably in some way hindering you right now from believing you are living the good life. That you're actually where God wants you. Something in you. Sin is probably broken that makes you think this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not as good as it could be. And that's what sin does. Sin makes us think God's not real, God's not with us, God's not for us. And I I think this is profound for us because this is not new, and yet I think I can speak anecdotally about how we experience it right now new. Okay? Now, I'm going to kind of digress here and see if I can kind of share with you my own heart of what the last year and a half has been like, Um, but in some sense, like, help you see how you and I can experience renewal and the real, real obstacles to experiencing renewal in the presence of God right now. So over the last year and a half, the, the voices, the loud noise that you can't tell which is which has largely been defi- div- like divided across people who in the face of a pandemic and division and difficulty either want to go back or they want to go forward. Something's wrong right now. We're not supposed to be here. And the problem is we're not back where we used to be. Well, the problem is we're not where we need to be. Have you heard this? And and it clouds clouds our ability to give and receive grace now, to experience God's presence and blessing right now. And here's the thing, that the... I, some, sometimes these sermons write themselves because the Lord just kind of like allows the history to play this out. But if you want to know which is which, like it's usually divided along partisan political parties, right? So, for example, if you're in one party, you might, you might really wish, right, as a slogan of President Trump that you can do what? Make America great again. Let's go back. Let's go back to the good old days. Or... You might, like President Obama, endorse the slogan, yes. Not a lot of people voted for Obama here, I guess, yeah. <laughs> or apparently didn't watch TV for eight years. Yes, we can. Do you hear it? Do you hear it? The noise is so loud mixed with people saying, we got to go back to the good old days. And no, 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 the good old days are in front of us. And I think this, I think Ezra here in this powerful picture of God's renewal addresses what I, I, can't, I can't call anything other than what I would describe as political idolatry. That is looking to something politically or in this earth that God alone can give. Looking to the good old days or the future to get something only God can give you in his presence right now. And it will, it will hinder you. When, you. when you see the good, old, like the, the good life through that lens, it will hinder you from just seeing reality now. And isn't that what, I mean, it's like, it's, this, is, this is, here we go. I would give more, but this is an object lesson. Just stop for a minute. What is this? Don't say anything loud. What is this? This is a mask, just so you know, in case you don't know what that looks like, right? 
Ask yourself this. When you see this, do you find yourself thinking of a beloved past or a beloved future? And I want you to know it will hinder you from experiencing grace and a gracious response now. This is a device for filtering particulate matter. In some sense, it has absolutely nothing to do with your past or future. It's, it's a device for filtering particulate matter. I sometimes wear, I wear a catcher's mask, right? It's the same thing. It's to filter particulate matter from <laughs> busting my face. It's, it's, it is so simple. But it hasn't been, has it? It hasn't. Because when you see this, there's something in you, right? Do you hear? Like, there's something in you that goes, man, that reminds me, I wish we could go back to the good old days. Or you see this and go like, I wish we could get into the future. Do you hear it? And I want you to know those, those, those deep cries in our heart to want what's in the past or to want good things in the future, they may very well be good and noble, but they will hinder you from experiencing God's renewing presence right now. Because they sell you a myth. They tell you the good old days are the good life. Or the good days in the future are the good life. It's frustrating because my whole job here, every single Sunday, is to snap in front of you and say, stop. Stop looking down. Look up. Set not your mind on earthly things. Right? Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated in the heavenly realms. That's my job. It's like, stop, stop. No, no, no. Look up. And it's been frustrating even for me. This is the place where I want renewal. Because in some sense, like the last month and a half, many of you are trying to figure out whether I'm like liberal or conservative based on how I used words like love, freedom, and justice. And I'm like, Your political party didn't invent justice. Your political party didn't invent love. And your political party didn't invent freedom. And here's the thing. If you try to kind of advance some worldly view of those things, you'll have put people in slavery and under tyranny. The real freedom you experience is not when you're freed from a mask. It's when you're freed from sin. The real justice isn't when people get what isn't when people get what's coming to them. It's when Jesus took what was coming to you. And here's the thing. I, I picked a mask. I mean, if I had a like a, a syringe with a vaccine in it, I would, I, they don't let me have that, but <laughs> I would have held up one of those, right? Or I would have worn a t-shirt that said Black Lives Matter. Or I would have worn a t-shirt that, that said like, you know, don't infringe upon my choice, right? My body, my choice. And he'd be like, I don't know who you are there, right? Or if I was like, right, whatever, whatever thing politically, it would probably really bother you. It'd be a great object lesson of like, hey, this is probably keeping you from the joy that you experience in God's presence right now. And here's the thing. It's advancing a false narrative. The narrative is what? God will be with and for his people, renew them and carry them out. He'll bring them home and protect them every step of the way. And they will experience adversity along the path. 
And the problem is when you think that the good old, like if you think the good life is back in the day, it causes you to overestimate our own righteousness and vastly underestimate our own depravity and sin, doesn't it? And so you're like, let's go back in the day to the good old days, right? And you're like, when? Like, and, and, and in that sense, like you, you, when you want to do that, you overestimate like your own righteousness and you obscure sin. Oh, you mean back in the day when, like, when women couldn't vote? You mean back in the day when we had like Jim Crow laws? You mean back in the day when we had slaves? Oh, back in, is that, is that the good old days? Right? And, and that sense, like, it, it's, it's this picture of like, it obscures sin, doesn't it? It's kind of like, well, that's, you've ignored that, like, there were sinful people back there. Whereas if you're on the other end, you, you kind of like think the good, like the good life is in the future, it obscures future sin. It overestimates our ability to be holy and righteous in the future and underestimates our sinfulness in the future. Like, hey, let's do this thing. Yeah, yeah, people are going to sin when you do that. You know that, right? And you kind of hear those competing views, right? Either overwhelmingly, there's nothing good, there's nothing redeemable in the past. It's all wicked and awful. We need, we've come so far. I mean, after all, it's 2021, right? That's the, that's the, that's the view. And, and we have only good things in the future. And that absolutely sells a bill of goods, doesn't it? That obscures the sin that exists. Whereas if you're on the other end and you're like, no, 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 we need to go back to the good old days. That, cure, that completely obscures sin that exists, doesn't it? Do you hear it? And the people who experience God's renewal are the ones that in the midst of the cacophony that can be heard from miles away say, look, God's going to be with us. God's going to be for us. He's going to be present with us and through adversity, he'll get us where he wants us to go. There is a land on the other side of the river. Did you hear that? And the Lord will bring us there. He will establish his presence there. So I just want you to see this is, this is a profound word for us. This is an old word for us. And yet it, it kind of it tugs at our hearts, doesn't it? The places where we tend to think we can get the good life. And it obscures us from the good life that comes from God alone. Make no mistake about it, to be Christian is to reject the claims of the good life this world has to offer, to repent of them, and receive the peace, grace, freedom, and joy that comes in Christ, and then live in such a way that advocates for the good life that is to come. So to you, friend, you want to go back in time. You're sort of right. You're right. If you go back, things were better. But you have to go a lot further than you think. You have to go all the way back before sin and Eden. And if you're in the room, you're like, no, we got to get to the future. And you're sort of right. That's what makes it appealing. Except you got to go past all the sin when Jesus comes and makes all the things new and, and the new Jerusalem comes and we're in heaven with him. So you're kind of right. You're like, hey, let's go back. But sin causes you to think like, no, this period of sin, this period of history that we're bound by sin, that's where the joy is. And to live a Christian life is to say that, no, the best this world has to offer is passing away. And now, in Christ, we'll be resurrected over it. Did you see here? The mix of people who were like, let's go back to the good old days. And then the mix of people who were like, this is going to be great. Even though they hadn't even finished it, right? They were celebrating. They're like, you just laid the foundation. You're not, it's, it's not even there yet. What happens next, I believe, is the adversity. 
is illustrated in painful deal in painful and painful detail over the next few chapters. Painful even maybe for you to read and skim through it, right? But he's making a theological point. Now, remember the, the aside that happened in chapter 4? The adversity they're experiencing under Artaxerxes, he's saying, is the same adversity that you're experiencing at this point under Darius. Now, to you, I would say it's the same adversity that you and I experience living in a broken world marred by sin. That the, the purposes of God are constantly being faced by adversaries. But it might not be like you think. God's purpose, ultimately, is what pulls them through. God's present with them, meets with them, and carries them along. And instead of looking back, right, this is, this is Ecclesiastes has profound wisdom. I was reminded of it. But like, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. We don't really do that well. And in the day of adversity, consider right? It doesn't say in the day of adversity, freak out. It says in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Now, in one sense, that's very painful and hurtful, right? You're like, ugh. Right, that's, a, that's a bleak statement. Well, that's Ecclesiastes, right? This guy got everything he ever wanted, and he realized it didn't satisfy his soul. Everything you wish you could have, he had a hundred of them, or a thousand. And and it didn't satisfy his soul. And he comes with wisdom, like in adversity, realize that God ultimately is the bringer of good. He's the bringer of satisfaction. But maybe if you're on the other sense, like saying, let's go back to the good old days, he has wisdom for you and I too. Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. <laughs> I, like how, I like how the Bible's kind to me right? It doesn't say what it really should say. Jonathan, that's, that's not from wisdom. Oh, fool, right? And so think of this, like the adversity that was facing them was not apart from God's will. The adversity and joy they'd experienced in the past was not apart from God's will, and yet God promised to be with them every step of the way. And for the next three chapters, we're encouraged and how Ezra wants us to remember, hey, this wasn't the end of the story. It seems like things have come to a standstill. It seems like God is lost. It seems like God's people have failed. And, and this just completely denies the powerful, renewing presence of God. And I, again, just pertinently, I think, hasn't at times it seemed like in, in the last year and a half, all the things that matter have stopped? Weren't there moments where everything was locked down? And, and if you looked, you might have thought for just a moment, well, everything important has come, right, has come to a, come, has ceased. And Ezra says that's not true. Ezra says that's not true at all. It might look like that. But facing adversity means seeing the long path, seeing that the arc of history is longer than our own lives, and God will carry us through it. Adversity, I would say even for, for you as Connection Church, adversity is something we embrace to think about mission. Uh, the way I talk about it, I'll say this more in the weeks to come, but like uh, experiencing God's grace in the world isn't by just like standing still and standing firm. Sometimes it can be that, uh, but it's more like standing on an escalator, or like if you're at a big, you know, a big airport standing on the walking sidewalk or the moving sidewalk, right? Experiencing God's grace in this world 
is not just standing still. In many ways, that's just like succumbing to the flow. Experiencing God's grace is trudging forward knowing that progress is made by going against the grain. And that's especially important for us because if you don't accept that, then you'll retreat from mission. Until you embrace this, this I mean, this is the power. Like you, you'll never get a chance to share the gospel with people because you'd rather just surround yourself with people who already look, talk, act, and believe like you. And until you understand that part of experiencing renewal is, is facing the adversity and let God pull and push you through, you'll retreat from mission. If you're not experiencing adversity as a Christian, personally, spiritually, then you're probably just being a Christian as privately as possible. And it's worth discussing here how, like, knowing that we're going to be against the grain and the flow of a sinful, broken world is a part of experiencing renewal. And until you admit that, you'll never experience it. You'll just be hiding from the adversity. I think this is how the good news of Christ often hits us first. I think there's, a, there's an illustration to be made here of how the adversity we experience is experienced when we first hear the gospel. No one likes being told they're a sinful person. Right? Do you hear it? Do you, do, you feel, do you feel like the tension? Like, no one likes being told, like, hey, you're so wicked and depraved and lost in your own sin that apart from the perfect Son of God pour, pouring out His own blood, laying down His life for you, you'll never see God, right? It's like, that hurts at first. So let me just give you an anecdote of how this has happened. Many of you in this room that are like members of our church or you've been, I've got a chance to baptize people who have like come to faith in Christ. I have a hard time talking about this without weeping, but, but like I'm going to laugh for a minute. Most of you, the very, you have a very similar story that the first time you met me or our church, you didn't like me or our church. So you can laugh. It's all right. There's, there's, a not, there's a lot not to like. It's okay. I'm not unaware. Now, on one hand, if, if you dislike me because of me, I owe you an apology, right? Like, this doesn't give us an excuse to be belligerent or combatant. But there's something already, in that sense, offensive about the gospel, and it's anecdotally true in this room that many of you have like come to Christ and your story involves when you first heard, when you first heard us singing so confidently and me like speaking so confidently about God's mercy and grace in Christ towards sinners, there's something that it's really, it, it bothersome, isn't it? Because your first thought is like, who does he think he is? Who do they think they are? And just, I, I just want you to know, as you're living on mission in the world, that's going to be common. That's going to be common. You're walking against the flow of the escalator, Right? And living on mission means looking for opportunities to, to like push against the stream because we declare a truth that pushes against adversity. Quite literally, it happened here in these three chapters. What God had called them to do was to just simply wait patiently and endure. Endure through the adversity. Endure through the flow that was pushing against them. And so in that sense, like it might be possible that people oppose you uh, because you're a jerk, right? And for that, you and I should repent and apologize. But it might also be possible that people oppose you because of what you stand for, that you, uh, you preach a radical statement, right? That your sin is worse than you think. And for many people who think they're not that bad, that's offensive. And to also simultaneously say you are loved more than you can imagine. And for cynical people, that just seems too good to be true. 
And yet, this is what faithfulness, I believe, is. We carry on. Do you remember what we saw a few, a few months ago? Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when what? When you experience trials of various kinds. How absurdly countercultural is that? Like, hey, how was your day? It was terrible. I'm so joyful about it. <laughs> so much joy today. So many trials of various kinds. So, oh, it's so great. Right? How, ca- how offensive and countercultural is that? And then to invite people to also think that? Like, hey, it's possible the Lord is going to do something that overshadows anything you've experienced. Here's some observations as we wrap up. God, God's work is always slow. And of course we lament at, at change that God brings about. Parents know this very well. When parents look at pictures of their children when they were younger, they cry. And that's so weird. I, like I look at, like, and I have, like my device does this, reminds me, hey, you have a memory from 10 years ago. Here's a picture of it. And I'm like, <laughs> and it's, like, here's like, my daughters are fine. They're perfect. They're... But in that moment, I'm tempted to think like that was, those were the good old days. I mean, that was back when things were great. And that's just dumb. And that hinders me from enjoying God's gifts now. So change always involves that. You will always lament what used to be. And you'll always be tempted to look past your current moment to get out of it. But both of those things will obscure, ultimately, what God wants to meet with you now and give you. So join me in praying and contending for endurance, for faith, that sees the end and understands that real joy and peace comes from meeting with God now in the midst of this. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says this in different ways, and you already know this. But I'm gonna, I'll start with what he quotes. No, I'll, I'll end with what he quotes. Psalm 23, you know this. Even though I walk, where? Through. Through the shadow of the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, not because you avoid it, but because of what? You're with me. I mean, you felt that, right? Like, hey, I can endure this as long as I don't have to do it alone. And the Lord promises, and the shepherd here responds, like, look, your rod, that's, that's, his, that's, his, that's his wrath, that he's going to protect you from the adversary, and your staff, that's his Right, that's the idea that maybe his crook or he's going to guide us, he's going to keep us from wandering off and drowning. They are what comfort me. Not by avoiding it, but by experiencing God's presence in the middle of it. He's going to be with us. And remember we, we talked about the prophet Haggai? You can look there in chapter 1 if you want, but I'll read you verse, three, verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. After he told them, hey, build this up. You're going to be a remnant. You're going to rebuild this. All the things that took place. What does he say? I'm with you. I'm with you. And when that sits deep, you start to say like the Old and New Testament writers that say something like, if he's with us, who can be against us? He's with you. Not back in the good old days and not in some imaginary future. Right now. He has more love and grace for you right now than you can even imagine. Right now. In this moment where you sit, he is with you and invites with you. I am with you. I don't know what you're, like I'm sitting there going like, I don't know what you're going to face this week. It could be terrible. 
But here's what I do know. He's going to be with you every step of the way. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. He didn't abandon them in slavery and in wandering, and he didn't abandon them in exile. He brought them back to a place and met with them. So, God delivers the remnant. He pulls and pushes his purpose forward right there with them and even through them. Friend, isn't that the gospel? Isn't that, in other words, what we celebrate in Jesus? That Jesus Christ has come to be with us? Isn't that kind of how he related to the Pharisees and the, and the sinners, right? Remember how he would talk about, the, he would talk, like the Pharisees would talk about the past. And he'd say, like, you claim to know the Bible, but you don't know it's about me. And he, he, he made them, like, look, you're overestimating your sin in the past. And yet he would say to the, to the Pharisees, if you don't do something about this, your future is marked by judgment. The Lord's going to wipe you out. I didn't even know you. But then when we met with the, with the sinners, the, we think of terms like the, the tax collector, the people he was associated with hanging around, do you remember what he would do? He would tell them their future is not marked by condemnation, but you were received. Your past is a lot more sinful than you probably realize. Those things you did were not the good old days, but you have hope now. And that's what Ezra begins to invite us to consider. And for you and I in Christ, we see the end of the story. How does Jesus build and rebuild us? He came to be with us. How does he deliver us from sin? He came and bore it. How does he ultimately defeat death? By avoiding it? No. By wearing it by carrying it to the grave and leaving it there. He gets in the mess with us. He's with you. And you can look to him. You can experience grace right now, right in this moment. You turn to him. You see he has borne our sorrows, borne our grief, and grants us comfort right here and now. Not comfort like the world offers that wears out, either in the future or the past, depending on how you tend to see the world. But he offers us all the comfort we need, all the comfort we'll ever need, all the comfort we have ever needed, and he offers it to us right now. He gets in with us. This is how Paul encourages us in a, in a chapter all about, the, all about the resurrection. And I'll end on this. He says, the sting of death is sin, the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the face of adversity, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that what? Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He's with us and for us, and he will guarantee the completion. He will renew us. He will give us new life. Not from above, not throwing it down at us, but by taking our place, by being with us and for us and bearing our burdens on our behalf. Let's thank him for that. Let's pray together to do that. Jesus, thank you so much that you, that you are the end of this story. God, I confess to you my own temptation to, to think that the good life, what I, really, what I really want was some glory day that I missed. 
God, I'm, I'm, I'm always filled with resentment and regret because I, I often think I need to go back to when things were better. God, would you help me to see that that's, that's not out of wisdom that I long for that. And then sometimes, Lord, I'm, I'm, con- I'm convinced that if I could just get through it, if I could just get past it, I wish away today uh, that, that things will be better. And would you, would you even now begin to remind us that that's not from wisdom either? And in the midst of those competing voices, would you help us even now to experience your presence? In the places we're cold and broken, in the places we're cynical, in the places we're hard-hearted, the places we're unforgiving or selfish, the places where we don't live on mission because we want to hide from the adversity, the places where we don't really think that you're good and you're going to be good to us and we retreat, would you comfort us in all those ways? Would you overwhelm us with the truth that you have come in Christ to bear the burden of sin once and for all? Every sin that we have ever committed, every sin that we may even commit now in our own heart in this moment, and every sin we will ever commit, all have been paid for. Every single one of them. You have borne in sorrow the price to bring us renewal and redemption right now. For those in this room, maybe that seems just too far-fetched. Would you begin to grant them the gift of faith? They would look upon you and realize it's not too good to be true. It's too good not to be true. And for the rest of us that we're so prone to, to buy into false forms of hope, God, supplant those. Supplant those false hopes. Or allow them to dissipate and replace them with the lasting hope. The hope that is paid down a deposit by your very presence in this moment. Let us experience that hope. Let us experience that presence. Let us experience that renewal that's granted to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.